we'll turn to the book of Ephesians. We'll spend all our time there in this session. In the routine business of doing the Lord's work, it is possible to lose sight of what it really is all about. And I think we know it's not about buildings and property, though that takes up a lot of our energy and time and resources. It's not really about our fellowship or the sharing that we have together, though that certainly is significant. The Bible talks about that. It's not about making sure that our organization is right. That's not the goal and the purpose of of the church, to make sure that we're organized right. It's not really about our children. It's not about our social circle, our safety net. It's really not about us. And uh, what it really is all about is God. And that's what the letter to the church at Ephesus is going to emphasize. That what the church is about, what worship is about, what the gospel is about, and even our salvation, what it really is about is God. It's, it's interesting to see that focus and that emphasis in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And this is probably the church that gets the most focus as far as text time in the New Testament. We've got uh, all of the third journey, basically, is about the church at Ephesus. And now we've got this letter to the church at Ephesus that is so profound and recognized as poetic, as well as very spiritual and certainly profound. Uh, and then we've got the letter that John wrote to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And it's interesting to see the history of the church in that in those writings. We're focusing, obviously, on this letter, and we want to see what really uh, the church is all about. And we want, we're going to just begin by looking in chapter 1 and notice that it is, in fact, all about God. If we look at several verses in this paragraph, you may be familiar with chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is the listing of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. But it's interesting to notice and count uh, the, the phrases that are repeated, or at least similar phrases that come over and over again. Notice, as we go through this with regard to the idea of just praising God, in verse 3 we've got, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word blessed means praise. It's the idea of acknowledging Him. So blessed be or speak well of God. In verse 6, all these things we've been talking about is to the praise of the glory of His grace. In verse 7 according to the riches of His grace. In verse 12, this is that we should be to the praise of His glory. And in verse 14, all of this was to the praise of His glory. Also, spaced through that paragraph, all the way through, is this emphasis on the praise of God, blessed be to God, everything. All of this that God is doing for us is to the praise of His glory. We look a little bit further and remember that there are other things here. Say, well, it's also all according to His will. Everything's according to His will. That's obviously emphasized in this paragraph. Look at verse 4. Just as He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He decided that. And there's not anything that we can do about that. That's the way He said it. In verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as a son by Jesus Christ, to emphasize the fact according to the good pleasure of His will. It's what He wanted. Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. You see that emphasis there? He's hammering this point down. This is all God's will, God's plan. Verse 11, 
in whom we also having obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The farther you go into the paragraph, the greater the emphasis of that idea. This is what God established. This was his plan. Well, we'll go a little bit further, and we see that this was also uh, a list, certainly, of the blessings in Christ, and that is the point that's emphasized. The blessings are in Christ. I'm not going to read through those, because in those verses, there's about 14 different statements, where, well, in verse 3, we've got, this: he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And you can just look for that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Then you realize, well, wait a minute, there's a pronoun in there. In him, in him, in him. And, okay, what about this one? In the beloved. In the beloved. And so about 14 different times, the emphasis is that these blessings are in Christ. Obviously, that is a focus and a, uh, and a, a, a certain emphasis in the text. But then finally, one more in verse, in verse 3 and following, and that is that the blessings are all spiritual. It's clearly stated in verse 3. Let's read that one one more time. It's got, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. The emphasis starts right there in verse 3, but then it is repeated over and over again as we go down the list. And notice in verse 3, it says, He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing and in, in heavenly places. In many translations, in the word places is in italics because it's added to try to give some understanding, I suppose. But leave it out. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly. And the idea, the unspoken word is, is the unheavenly realm. Some translations say in the heavenly. And the point is that God has blessed us. He's not talking about heaven here because it's something that God has already done. He's already enlightened us and adopted us and redeemed us and adopted and appointed us and given us an, a heritage. These are things that he's already accomplished. So he's not talking about what we get when we go to heaven. He's talking about what we've got now. But what we've got now, all these things, are things that we enjoy in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm. They're spiritual blessings, and they're enjoyed in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm. There's not one word here about having our daily bread and about good health and about a good job and the blessing of faithful children. We thank God for those blessings. We ask God for those blessings. And the scriptures are clear that we ought to do that, to both ask Him, give us our daily bread, and to thank Him for all things. That's not what this is about. Because that's not what the church and what Christ and our salvation ultimately is about. That's just kind of, we call it gravy. That's just stuff that goes along with it. That's just other things that are maybe a part of it. But what's the heart and the core? The heart and the core is God's will be done. Praises be to God. Everything that we are or have is in Christ. And in Christ, we receive spiritual blessings. So when we wonder, what is the church and what is Christianity all about? That's what it's about. It's not about me. It's not about me. Whatever part I have in this, it's about God. Even my own salvation is ultimately to the praise of God. As you read in the, in the Scriptures, obviously man is created in the image of God. And in the image of God, God can see something that is a reflection of His glory. Of course, that's destroyed in sin. 
Colossians talks about being recreated in Christ. And if, if we are the glory of God, certainly all creation shows His glory. You know the passage in the psalm that talks about the, that the, 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 this creation is that shows His handiwork and His glory. What's that mean? It means when you can look at the works of God in the mountains and in the stars and in the changing seasons, that you can see God's glory and His power and His might, His intelligence, His order. You see the character, at least some of the character of God in that creation. But it's such a limited view, isn't it? There's nothing about love in there, nothing about grace and nothing about mercy in there, nothing about His affection for His creation. But in man, there is a creature that is in His image with whom He can communicate and upon whom He can place responsibilities and expectations and from whom He can receive joy when they respond and grief when they disobey. Of course, in that disobedience, it's all messed up. But in the recreation and in the new creation in Christ, we see a greater revelation of God. Now we see love that had never been seen before and mercy and grace that could not be comprehended before. We see majesty. We see God like He's never been seen before in Christ and in redemption. And in you and in me as a part of that. And so ultimately, my salvation is not about me getting to go to heaven. My salvation about is about me being the ultimate complement to God Almighty. All praises to God. So you see how we become very small in that. We're no longer the center of everything. God is at the center of everything. Rather than us and our church and our fellowship and our work and what we're accomplishing and what we're doing. Of course it's all for the glory of God, but there's an emphasis here and now and us. It's so easy to lose the focus. It's spiritual blessing. It's about praising God. And it's about ultimately that His will, the whole thing about the authority of God in the letter of the Galatians is touched on here. It's about His will. And if His will isn't being done, then it's all for nothing. That's at least a part of what it's about. It's not about me, and it is not about this world. Ephesians chapter 1. That's not the end of the story. We go a little bit further in chapter 1, verses 15 and following. We see that it's also about us growing in appreciation of something. Look, look at it. He, he does talk about us. He does talk about the Christians. Beginning in verse 15, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for the saints. I don't cease to give thanks, making a mention of you in my, in your, in, in my prayers. But notice, that's the part about us. But notice how quickly he, he turns the emphasis that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, the riches of His glory, the, of, the, of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. He started out saying, I pray for you. But how quickly the paragraph turns to a focus again on Christ and God and all that God accomplishes in Christ. What was the prayer about? 
so that you'll know that, so that you'll see that and understand that. And so in order to see and to understand those concepts, we've got to think spiritual, not material. We've got to think heavenly, not worldly. We've got to think Godward, not selfward. That's exactly what the text does, doesn't it? All spiritual blessings are given to us. He's blessed us. We think it's about us. Read the text. It's not about us. I'm, he's praying for us. You can pray for us? Yeah, I'm praying for you. That you'll open up your eyes and see God. And see the power and the working of God. It's about God. And so we think about what it's about. What's the church about? It's the expression of God's power. What are we about? We're the expression of God's power. God's will. And His might. And what he is able to accomplish. In chapter 2, he goes on. What's, what's Christianity really all about? And in chapter 2, we've got the two sections really. First, talking about we were dead in our trespasses and we're made alive. We're saved by grace. See, we are saved by grace. And it's so easy then to talk about and think about ourselves right here again. The last half of the chapter, beginning in verse 11 and 14-ish, is where he's talking about that he is our peace. We're dead, we've been raised, the first section. We're the enemies of God, and we've been brought near. And we've got friendship and fellowship with God. So again, it seems to be about us. But when we read the chapter, again, where is the focus and where is the emphasis? It starts out, in my version, in New King James, by saying, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. And in my particular version, it emphasizes that he made alive has been added in italics. And I think that's unfortunate because that puts an emphasis in the wrong place. It's not about us being made alive. It's about us being dead. Let's read how, how far do we read before we get to the part about life. Let's leave that italics out. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience among whom... Also, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. All of that's about death and failure and sin and wickedness. Don't jump too quick to the made alive part. Let's, let's read it the way it was written. And you, dead and lost, separated. The you is that part. That's the me. That's the us part. Verse 4 starts with the word but, in contrast, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved, and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, with God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not the, the, the subject of that paragraph. We're the object of it. God is the subject. And God had to do something about us. And the text tells us what God did about us to bring about our salvation. Our miserable state is described. 
And the attitude that brought about the change and the possibility of change is emphasized. And so as we think about what's it all about, it's about new life with God. And apart from God, there is no life. There's only life in God. And we need feel the need to add the disclaimer here that while it is by grace, we've got to do what God says in order to hold that grace. And amen, that is so true. And the world is misusing this passage. But let's not allow the world's misuse of this passage to suggest that it is only by faith and that we have no obligation to God in the matter of salvation. Let's not let our concern for that rob us of the understanding of what a great debt we owe. And the fact, really, God has done it all. And my response in faith is, is pittance. And my willingness to submit in repentance and baptism is no price. No payment for what he's giving us. It is by his grace that we can enjoy these things. And verse 11, he goes on to emphasize it further that Gentiles in particular, separated from God, no hope, and without God, aliens, strangers, he calls us. Verse 13, but now in Christ. You see the construction of the thing. Here's, the, here's, here's what, where we are. We're nowhere. We started out, we're nobody, and now we're nowhere. But in Christ, we're, made a, we're brought near. He is our peace. He made us one. And He has brought about our salvation. So if you think about what is it all about, we need to remember that we didn't do this. We didn't do this. We did not bring about any of the things that we enjoy in Christ. We are recipients of His will recipients of His grace and recipients of His mercy. We are merely responding to grace and mercy by humbly, finally, humbly doing what we should have been doing all along. Submitting faithfully to His will. The creatures that we were created to be. That's what it's really about. And so as we think about our Christianity, is that what I'm about? Is that what I'm about? We need to understand that from chapter 3, again, be careful that we don't lose sight of what it's all about. In chapter 3, Paul says, for this reason, because of the blessings in chapter 1, the salvation that God has given so freely in chapter 2, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace which was given to me for you, how that by revelation... He made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you can understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other, which in other ages was not made known, as it has now been made known through the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and partakers of the same body and of the promise, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me. So look at that, and, and, and Paul is wordy here because these are profound concepts. His appointment to be a special ambassador from God to the nations. That's what the word Gentile means, the nations. And he was supposed to go to the nations and tell them, you can have fellowship with God. You can be reconnected to the God who is your creator. But what Paul says is that God has given this responsibility, verse 8, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you see how 
small Paul is in his own estimation in comparison to the task that is before him. We want to remember where the focus is. What's it all about? It's not about the fact that I'm the gospel preacher. It's not about the fact that I have been given a job and it's my job. The focus is there are these nations that do not know the gospel and I've been chosen to be a part of the process that they can know the gospel. Hear that focus. He says in verse 9, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages was hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Everybody, everybody is supposed to see this. It's not about us right here. It's about the world. And God's world is out of step. In verse 10, this is to the intent, or for the purpose, to the intent, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose of Him which He accomplished in Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation, which is your glory. What's it all about? Is that Paul knows that he has a responsibility to make everybody see what God has done. It's not about here. I'm in New York and I get all consumed with, with what I've got going there. And you are all consumed with what you've got going here. We've got to remember it's bigger than that. It's bigger than now. It's bigger than here. And it's bigger than us. We're part of something that is bigger than our comprehension. And we've got to to feel the immensity of, of the moment that life in the gospel presents us. The trivials that we get tied up with, yes, in the work of the gospel, I'm not even talking about the trivials of the rest of our life that weighs us down and distracts us from what we're supposed to be. But even the trivials with regard to the work of the gospel drag us away from the big picture. And Paul is trying to get the church at Ephesus to see the big picture. This is so big. And we're on the brink of this moment. We can hear that. We can, we can see it in New Testament times. Is it any different? We've been given this moment. And it is just as big and just as significant. Now, it's interesting. In, in chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, he breaks away from this. You go back to really what he had in chapter 1. He's overwhelmed by this need to praise God again. Remember that all of this was, in verse, verse uh, 10 and 11, that... The manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. What's that about? That's about remembering that you being the church that you ought to be is a declaration to the universe of God's power to take sin and make it go away and to take people who are at odds with one another and to make them one. That is not as easily seen in the, maybe in the church at Franklin, Tennessee. How many are Tennesseans? There's a few out-of-towners who now live here. Maybe even some Yankees. But there's, there's a lot of uniformity about where we're from and who we are. But think about the church at Ephesus, of Jew and Gentile races that, that wouldn't touch each other, wouldn't speak to each other. 
you see our, the picture of us in New York City. There's a lot of colors there and accents. And we barely understand each other when we all speak English. But that's what the church is. It's this coming together of everybody. Anybody. No, everybody is supposed to come together and be in this one body. And so verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. And he's bowing his knees and praying that you, that he would grant you according to the riches of the glory to be strengthened in the inner man, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be rooted and grounded in love, and that you might be able to comprehend. Does that suggest that there's a little doubt that you will be able to? That you may be able to comprehend the exceeding riches, riches, of God, the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. He says, that's what it's about. It's about us beginning to comprehend what God is. That's what the gospel is about. And that's what the church is working for. It's a huge, huge thing that we have before us. We just look a little bit further here. In chapter 4, he begins to call people to behave themselves. In verses 1 through about verse 16, he says you need to walk as one in unity. He starts off by saying there's one body, one spirit. You know, we know the list of ones there. It's called the constitution, the foundation of, of unity in Christ. I don't, it's not just that we all agree that there's one of each of these things, and therefore we, that's an image of... Uh, a, a picture of unity because we all agree there's one baptism we all agree there's one Lord we all agree there's one faith and so we're all united and that's unity he says the nature of God and the nature of the gospel and the nature of his work and the nature of his truth the nature of his church is unity if there's anything in there that speaks of division then there's something wrong if there's anything in there that, su- that suggests separation and enmity, and that's a violation of what it's all about. As brothers and sisters in Christ, I think maybe we need to pray that we will fully comprehend the significance of the importance of unity. That is unity that's based on an understanding of the truth and a willingness to sacrifice all to conform to His will and a sacrifice of my own self and my own identity to be one with my brothers. That unity is what it's all about. Walk worthily of the calling. In verse 17 and following, he starts talking about moral issues. Don't, don't walk like the Gentiles, the nations. Don't walk like everybody else. The futility of their minds, they're darkened their understanding. They don't understand why you do what you do. They can't because they have not seen the gospel the way that you've seen the gospel. They are past feeling. What he's saying is, do you really think you're supposed to act like them? That's who they are. I, I, let me describe them. And you, you're going to act like them? Absolutely not. And so do not grieve the Spirit. and Put away lying and speak truth one with another. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. You can't do that. They do that. We understand why they do that. You don't do that. Walk worthily of the gospel. You see, that's what Christianity is about. It's about us becoming holy because that's the will of God. It's about us being adopted as His children and wearing His name because that was his eternal purpose. And it's about us conforming to that so that we can be to the praise of his glory. And it's all ruined if I've got a dirty, foul mouth. 
if I'm not honest with my neighbor. It's all messed up. And we take away the glory, and we insult and embarrass, and his gospel looks like a failure, and the church looks like a hypocritical sham, and so we've got the natural reaction of the world. Do we understand what we do to the purpose and the plan of God when we don't walk the way we're supposed to walk? This is powerful teaching here. Well, what's it all about? It's about me behaving myself so as not to embarrass the Creator and the Savior of the world. I've got to get my focus back on that. Am I living the way I'm supposed to live? Walking in love, and walking in children of light, walking wisely. With each one of these, there is a list of things that we cannot do, that I must not do, and some things that I need to engage in, I need to, to fulfill in my life. Finally, in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, he emphasizes the idea of putting on the whole armor of God that you will be able to stand because that's what you've got to do. What's it all about? It's about you and me standing firm in Christ, faithful to the last day. That's what it's about. To the praise of His glory according to His will knowing that it's all accomplished in Christ. And He does that by His grace because I need, oh, I need the forgiveness of my sins. Humbly returning to Him and doing finally, doing again what I should have been doing all along. That's what the church is about. That's what Christianity is about. We are called to imitate God so that we can be to the praise of His glory according to His will and in Christ. What is it all about? It's about praising God for the blessings that He has given us. That we become the reflection of His glory and His mercy and His power and His love and His might of all that He is that is seen in the church when it is what it ought to be. And it's about finally beginning to appreciate and understand that about God. So it's about growing in Christ. We've got to begin to picture God as He's portrayed here. And that new life is the life we live. Getting that message to everybody. Everybody. And certainly calling all together to walk worthy of the Lord. These are the things that are what Christianity is about. No more slides or one more passage. You don't have to turn there. I think you've heard it enough. But that last letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. I know your works, the Lord said through John this time. I know your works. Your faith, your labor, how that you oppose those that are false. You expose those that are teaching error. Just compliment their fine stand for the truth. But, remember what the but was? I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. We hear that statement, considering what Paul wrote to them in this letter. Do you think the letter was written because they would have a tendency to do what they finally did? They were still standing in the doctrine. They were still practicing what the Lord said to practice. And they were still opposing the false teachers. Good work, the Lord said. But there's a problem here. You've forgotten what it's all about. You forgot what it's all about. Where's the zeal? Where's the heart? Where's the praise? Where's the love? Where's that emotional part of your commitment to the Lord that grows out of? It's not artificial emotionalism, but it's an emotion that grows out of a full understanding of who God is, who you are, and what He's done in response to what you've done. And so now what you must do 
because that's the only right thing to do. Don't lose your first love. I think that's what Paul is writing in the letter to the Ephesians church. And it's a powerful message to us. 